And the rest of us, please, if we could turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10, and um, we're going to read from verse 7. And this is found on page 1151, page 1151. One Corinthians chap- sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse. Seven. <clears throat> now the first sentence there says, look at what is before your eyes. The actual, and another translation, which I think is probably more accurate, is you look at what is before your eyes, or you look at things from an outward point of view. And then it continues. If anyone is confident that he is in Christ, that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave me for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening to you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Well, let's now... Come to God and ask for his help as we consider his word. Oh Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity that we have this morning to consider your word. Lord, please would you help my voice to, uh, to stay steady and to continue working so that I can teach our friend, my friends and brothers and sisters here. And Lord, please... Would you enable your word to be taught clearly, helpfully and accurately and in the power of the Holy Spirit? And please, Father, as we hear your word, please help us, Lord, to learn what we need to learn from you. We pray that if anybody needs to be uh, challenged, needs to be convicted of sin, we pray that that will happen. If anybody needs to be encouraged, that will happen. If anybody needs to come to Christ, that will happen. And so that your word, your kingdom, will go forward. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, for anyone who is a true Christian or who is looking into Christianity, not yet a Christian, but looking into Christianity, one thing that is absolutely vital is to discern accurately a true teacher from a false teacher. There are any number of people out there who will say, I am a Christian. I am a Christian teacher, or I'm a Christian prophet, or an apostle, or evangelist. And they'll say, listen to me, listen to the words that I'm bringing to you. And many, many of these people are false. And we've got to be very careful because if you listen to what they say, if you're not yet a true Christian, you listen to what they say and you'll go to hell. It's that serious. You will not know the gospel. You will not be saved. And if you are a true Christian and you listen to what they say, you'll become very stunted and weakened in your Christian life. So it's really, really important to know who are the true teachers and who are the false ones. And this is something that Jesus warned about. We read that in, the, in, this, in that passage in Matthew chapter 7 earlier on. Where Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So they look like sheep on the outside. They look like true Christians on the outside. Because remember, sheep, that's the word that is often used in the Bible to describe those who are believers. So they look like sheep. But actually the reality is they are wolves who just want to eat the sheep. They don't want to, they're not true sheep themselves and they just want to eat to destroy the sheep of God. The the Apostle Paul also warns us in his second letter to Timothy and chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences have been Seared. So these false teachers, says, says Paul, they are inspired by demons. The devil himself is behind them. They look so plausible. They look so good. They, they seem so nice, some of them. They've got the gift of the gab. Seem so gifted. Seem to be so successful. Yet, they're inspired by demons. Now, 
Arguably, this has never been a greater danger than in our own generation. See, back in the days, if you were living in a particular town or a particular village, and you were part of a Bible-believing church, chances are you wouldn't probably come across false teachers very much. Unless they did a, like a tour, like a preaching tour, and came to your village. Or unless you, went on a, you, unless you went out of your village and you went off to market town somewhere where you might perhaps pick something up, that some strange things that people are saying somewhere else. But not now. Because with the arrival of the internet, we've got access to all sorts of, 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 of teaching. Now, that's a, both a, a potential blessing, but also a potential curse. The blessing is, well, you could listen to the very best preachers in the whole wide world. <laughs> you know, you can, you can go home from here and immediately plug into what they were saying just an hour ago. Somebody over in Los Angeles or somewhere like that. And you listen to this amazing, mind-boggling preaching that's so accurate and so faithful and so full of the Holy Spirit. And you, it can do you a tremendous amount of good. But, by the same token, you also have the potential to listen to the most clever, deceptive, destructive teaching that there is in the whole wide world. It's, and it can come to you right in your living room, or even in your, when you're in your bedroom, on your phone, and there you are. These things are coming to you right in your face. So it's so important that we have discernment about true teachers and false teachers. Now in the passage that we're thinking about today, Paul tells the believers in Corinth that they have been using the wrong criteria to judge who is a true teacher and a false teacher? And I, my hope is that as we learn about the wrong criteria that Paul tells these believers in Corinth that they were using, we can learn from that about how we can make our own assessments of teachers in our own day and generation. But also... I hope that we can also learn not to actually make some of the mistakes that the false teachers themselves are making. You see, some of the faults that those false teachers exhibited in Paul's day actually, as we'll see, I hope, are temptations for us. Even as Christians, we can find ourselves doing the very same things that those false teachers do. So we need to uh, watch out and learn from that as well. Now the background for this passage is that Paul established this church in Corinth a few years before this. And he was in Corinth for a couple of years. And it was a mighty work of God that happened in Corinth. I think we can easily forget that because you know, you, you, when you read the first letter to, Corinth, to the Corinthians, you read about 
you know, all sorts of problems the church had in terms of sin in its midst and denial of the resurrection and lack of love and misuse of the Lord's Supper. You think, oh, what a, what a basket case of a church. <coughs> but we can forget that actually this was a very significant work of God, a mighty work of God. And lots of people from completely pagan backgrounds, people whose lives were sold out to sin, had been converted and had been added to this church. Um, so Paul had established this church, and, and but what had happened is that he then, having established this church, he'd then gone on to another part of the Roman Empire in order to try to establish other churches in other places. And while he was away, new teachers had come into the church. People who were claiming to be the real deal, as it were. They were claiming to be apostles. They were claiming to be God's men for the situation. And what they were saying is, oh, you want to forget Paul? He's no good. He's, 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 he's weak and he's poor and he's, he, he, doesn't, he, he doesn't have much success. He keeps on getting into trouble and being thrown into prison. And he's got bad health. No, forget him. Go to us. We're the ones. We're strong. We're healthy. We've got money. We've got youth, vigor. We're the ones. We're the, we're the, we're the guys for today. But the problem is, it wasn't just that they were attacking Paul, but they were attacking his gospel. They were putting forward a different way to know God and a different way to serve God. And so Paul was having to defend himself, not because he's worried about his own ego. You might think when you read this, oh, he's worried about losing, his, losing face or worried about, you know, losing his followers. No. point is he knows he has to defend himself and his ministry because if they, if they turn away from him, they will turn away from the gospel that he proclaims. And so he, very reluctantly, he's forced to defend himself. And, that, and that's really what he's doing in this chapter and in chapter 11 and through into chapter 12 as well. And, um, you know, hopefully as we go through, we'll see these different, we'll look at it from different angles. Now, so what I want to do this morning then is to try to draw out from these verses uh, five mistakes that the that, are, that, that I think we can identify from this that the, that the church in Corinth was making as it made its assessment about whether to listen to Paul or whether to listen to these false teachers. So let me give you these five mistakes. And I hope that as we learn about the mistakes of the church in Corinth, we can seek to learn from that and seek to avoid making those same mistakes ourselves. The first one is this. They were judging 
by outward appearance. Now, here, as I mentioned as I was doing the reading, I think I would respectfully disagree with the translation. I know it's a bit of a bold thing to do, but I, 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 I'm not alone in this, actually. I mean, um, in fact, the ESV is about the only modern translation that translates the beginning of this verse in this way. So the, the, um, the, um, the way that our ESV translates it is as a command. He's saying, look at what is before your eyes. Now, there's two key words there, which is the word to see and the word face. Now, the thing about when, we're, when you're translating from ancient Greek to modern English is that when you have a verb, it could either be a, a, a description of what people are doing or it could be an imperative telling them to do something. Or it could be a question. Are you doing that thing? And you have to decide, because there's no punctuation, and because the imperative uh, is going to be the same form, where it's you're commanding someone, it's going to be the same form as a, as a description. You then have to decide, from the context and from the way in which the word is used in other places, how to translate it. Now, so the ESV translates it as a command, look at what's in your face. In other words, look, look, at, what's in, look, look at what's obvious to you. Look at, look at, what's, look, look at the face of things, you say. That's, that's how the ESV commands it. But, the, but other, translates it, other translations translate it as though they are mistakenly, as a description, that they are mistakenly looking at the outward face of things. So the NIV translates it, you are only looking on the surface of things. Or the New King James uh, puts it as a question. Do you look at the things according to the outward appearance? New American Standard Version is similar to the NIV. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. The Net Bible says you are looking only at outward appearances. So apart from, I think the, the, um, the, the Christian Standard Version follows the ESV, but virtually all the other translations that, that, that uh, oh, King James also says, do ye look on the outward appearance? So virtually all the translations, apart from the ESV and apart from the, the Christian Standard Version, uh, say that you're doing wrong here, effectively. You're looking at things outwardly. You're looking on the outward appearance and not, and not as things as they really are. And I think that, that, that probably these other translations are correct because of, of the way in which this word is used, when it's talking figuratively, it's often used to say that somebody's looking at things wrongly. So if you go back to another occurrence of this word back in chapter 5 and verse 12, he says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but we are giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance 
and not about what is in the heart. Now that's the same word, this outward appearance (coughs) is the same word as what we have used here in chapter 10. These people are wrongly looking at the outward, wrongly looking at how things appear, rather than looking at what is in the heart. And um, it, it also occurs, this word also occurs in Matthew chapter 22 when, and verse 16 when Jesus' enemies were trying to flatter him, really. And they said to him, you are not swayed by appearances. You don't go by how things are outwardly. And also Galatians 2 verse 6 says about God, that God shows no partiality. God doesn't look at things on the outward. God deals with people as they really are. And then also Jude verse 16 talks about, uh, about false teachers who are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. They, they, again, they treat people according to the outward. So I think we should take this as Paul, rather than saying to them that they should be looking at the outward, but rather it's the other way around. He's saying to them, you are wrongly looking at the outward appearance instead of looking at the heart. So the people, these false teachers and and the church in Corinth, they're, they're judging Paul by outward appearances. Perhaps how healthy he was or how much money he had or how good looking he was whether he was entertaining in the way he spoke and because they were looking at him from the outward appearance rather than according to what is in the heart they were drawing a wrong conclusion now there's great danger that we do the same isn't there We look at this particular preacher and we say, oh, well, he looks a bit old and doddery. Oh, his church isn't very big, is it? Oh, he, he doesn't have very much money. Oh, look at him, he's got all these health problems. He can't be God's man. It's very easy, isn't it, to, to judge by the outward appearance rather than by looking at the heart to see what is this person's heart like? What, what, what Does he really know the Lord? And does he really want to serve the Lord? Now, remember what God said to Samuel. Do you remember when Samuel went to anoint a new king over the, the nation of Israel and he went to Jesse's house and one of Jesse's sons came and stood before him and he thought, and he thought ah, that's the one. <laughs> Tall, handsome, strong. Oh, yeah, that's the one. But God said to him that he should not look at the outward because, and he should not consider his appearance. He said, because I look at the heart. Man looks at the outward, but God looks at the heart. Now you might say, but I'm not God. How can I look at the heart? Because the heart is, is, 
It's, it's hidden. You can't, you can't see people's hearts. Well, you can and you can't. No, it's true. You can't go right into someone's motivation. But the heart does betray itself. Someone's heart does betray itself. His heart will be betrayed by two things. His speech and his actions. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If someone is proud, if someone is, is greedy or lustful, sooner or later it will come out. Maybe with a, a smutty joke or a dismissive comment or anger, but it will come out through his tongue. It will, he, he will betray himself. And the other way in which you can tell what's in the heart, as Jesus said, is the lifestyle of that person. Remember that saying when we, Jesus said in Matthew 7 that we should not believe every prophet, but we should test the prophets. And he said, he said by their fruit you will know them. Well, what is fruit? What fruit is he talking about? He's talking about the fruit of their lifestyle. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit being at work in a person's life. Whereas the fruit of somebody who is not a true servant of Christ, will be sins like sexual immorality and lying and stealing and being proud and abusive and argumentative and all these other works of darkness that Paul also talks about in, in Galatians chapter 5. So, so we can, to a certain extent, not perfectly, of course, but we can, with God's help, over time, become aware of somebody's heart if we, if, we, if we look at his life. And we need to be, we need, so we need to not look at the outward, but to look upon the heart. Now, of course, this is an application to us as well, isn't it? Some people are all very, very keen on making themselves look good. You know, the Pharisees, that's what they did, wasn't it? They were all, all show. Very religious on the outside. Oh, you know, wearing long religious robes and praying in public. And, and, and everybody said, oh, wow, that's so religious. That's so good. But Jesus could see right through it. He said, it's all a show. It's just a pretense. They said they're like whitewashed tombs. They look all beautiful on the outside. But inside... That's full of death and corruption. Now, we've got to be very careful about that, all of us, haven't we, as Christians? You know, you put on a good, hello everybody, you know, all nice and smiley and everything else at church. But then, you know, get home and you're a monster. We must not be like that. We must be consistent. Having our own times of prayer, our own times of reading the Bible, and and following through in our daily lives what it really means to be a Christian. Okay, so 
There's the first mistake they made. They judged by the outward rather than by the heart. Now, the second thing we see that they did wrong was that they showed contempt for God's servant. We can think, pick this up, I believe, from the second half of verse 7. If anyone is confident he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. It seems as though some people were basically treating Paul in a dismissive way and in a contemptuous way. Oh, we're the Christians, you know. Well, hang on a minute, says Paul. Have you forgotten something? I'm a, I belong to the Lord myself. I'm a Christian myself. It's almost as if they, they, they think of him as not even worth treating as a believer. And what we need to remember is that every true believer has immense importance and status. Every true believer should be shown a great deal of respect and love. Because every true believer belongs to Christ. And every true believer is a child of God, an heir, a king. And we need to be very careful not to fall into a sort of spiritual pride or a spiritual one-upmanship. Oh, or, or whereby one only relates with certain believers who are your sort, you know, perhaps of a particular, maybe of your age group, of your social standing, or of your, you deem to have the same level of income as yourself. No. There should be this love and respect for all, because all who are true believers are the children of God. They are in Christ. You might be aware of another believer who has <coughs> somewhat different convictions from yourself. Maybe that person hasn't understood certain things that you understand. There should still be that love and that respect for all. And in particular, those who have labored in the Lord should be honored and respected. Their job is not easy. And they have they've done well to serve the Lord. Uh, Paul, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So there's the second thing then. The, the believers showed contempt. That's the second mistake they made. They showed contempt for Paul. Didn't have proper respect for him as a Christian, let alone as a, as a, te- as a pastor and as a teacher. Thirdly, 
the believers in Corinth misinterpreted Paul's gentleness. We see this in verses 10 and 11 of this reading. He says, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Paul was not rough with people, especially when he was with them in person. He was gentle. He was kind. We we know this from, from other places as well. The way in which he dealt with people was not rough, um, but he was tender with people, patient with them, bearing with them. Um, he says, in, for example, in, um, in 1 Thessalonians, he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7, he says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And uh, also, he says, verse, verse 11, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you, charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. So Paul was like a, a mum and like a dad and the same person. He was kind, gentle, not rough in the way that he dealt with the, with the believers in Corinth. And they misinterpreted that. They thought, oh, he's, he's, he's gentle, he's soft with us. Yeah, he might, he might write a stiff letter when, when, when he's away, but, but he, he, he's gentle, he's soft. Oh, he, he's, he must be a bit weak. He must be a bit pathetic. He must be somebody who, who doesn't really have any strength of convictions. Failing to see that meekness and gentleness is not a sign of weakness. Meekness and gentleness is a sign of strength. Anybody can be a bully. That's easy. But being gentle, being kind, that that takes something. Proverbs 16, verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. But these believers in Corinth, they seem to gravitate towards bullies. They almost seem like they wanted to be bullied. And they think, well, we want a really strong, tough leader to tell us what to do, push around. And we get a hint of this in, in chapter, if you look forward to chapter 11 and verse 20. He says, for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you. Or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. And this is the funny thing you find. You find that some Christians will put up with anything from their pastors. You know, they'll, they'll be bullied, they'll be harangued, they'll be 
treated badly, there'll be, there'll be, there'll be demands for money, they'll be lied to, cheated by, cheated, 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 cheated. And, and then they'll say, oh yeah, we'll have that, that's fine. And they almost expect it. And what's even more amazing sometimes is you have a really kind, humble, gentle pastor who cares for sheep, and the sheep leave him and go off to some bully. You think, what's going on here? But it happens. It's very strange. It's a bit like, um, I'm sure some of us know this, maybe some of us know some, very tragically, some individuals who, who get into this sort of cycle some, some women particularly get into this sort of cycle that they, perhaps they've had an abusive father when they're growing up who has really knocked them about and treat them terribly. And then they leave home and what do they go into? What sort of relationship do they go into with a, with a man? They go into an abusive relationship with that bloke. And then he knocks the, the poor woman about and treats her terribly. And then eventually that relationship breaks down. And what does she do? She goes straight into another abusive relationship. It's tragic, but it happens, doesn't it? And you have this sometimes with Christians. They put up with abuse and maltreatment. And they think, oh, I can't leave my church. I'll be a bit disloyal. Oh, I mustn't touch the Lord's anointed. Something terrible might happen to me. And so they put up with all sorts of terrible abuse for years. And they think it's normal. It's not normal. It's not right. It's abuse. Let's call it what it is. And God is very clear about that in Ezekiel chapter 34 about the the shepherds of Israel who were abusing the sheep, taking advantage of them. And Paul says, I I was much too weak, quotes weak for that. And they say, oh, look at him. He's just some pathetic little weakling because he never bullies us. (laughs) No, he's a Christian. He's behaving in a Christian way. So, do not despise a pastor who seems a bit weak. He seems a bit gentle. He doesn't seem to be very assertive. Much better that than to have somebody who knocks knocks people around and, and, and treats them in a harsh and unkind way. And look for a leader who is meek. Pray for me that, and, and for Ed that we will embody meekness and gentleness. But if you move to another church or you need to find um, an, someone to succeed me or Ed, make sure you find somebody who embodies Christian meekness and humility and kindness. And let's cultivate this virtue ourselves. Let us, let us ourselves seek to be meek and kind. Let's not see meekness as a, as a, as a, as a flimsiness or, you know, the world is very strong and, oh, you need to be assertive. You need assertiveness training. You need to not allow anybody to push you around. Huh. Would we had a bit of meekness training? That would be good, wouldn't it? Rather than assertiveness training. I know, of course... Sometimes you do need to know how to answer, but 
I don't think people need assertiveness training somehow. I don't think that's the problem. We need to learn how to be meek and gentle. Well, that's the third thing. And then fourthly, they listened to those who commended themselves. Verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. These false teachers commended themselves. Oh, we are doing this. We are achieving that. We've got all these converts. We've got these miracles. We've done this and that and everything else. We've got all these gifts. We've got all this money. We are so intelligent. We are so learned. Commending themselves. Boasting of their supposed achievements and gifts and abilities. But Paul says, verse 18, let's look on to verse 18. But it's not the one who commends himself who's approved, but it's the one whom the Lord commends. What really counts is not, does this person commend himself, does this person boast about this or that gift or success or whatever, but has this person got the Lord's commendation on him? Can you see the fruit? And uh, you can see the signs that, yes, God says is okay. And of course, ultimately, the thing to look for is that commendation on the final day. So, watch out. If you have somebody who um, maybe is giving some talk on the internet, and he's talking about himself. He's talking about, oh, and I did this, and I did this, and, and the Lord used me to deliver so-and-so, and the Lord used me to heal so-and-so, and this and that and everything else. Be careful. Paul says elsewhere, doesn't he, we preach not ourselves but Christ and, and him crucified. It, 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 it's the Lord that, who should be the, the, the one, who is the one, the centre of attention. But we need to be careful ourselves, don't we? Because there's probably something in all of us that really wants people to think well of us. You know? And we can sort of drop into conversation and, oh, well, of course, as I was talking to my friend the other day about Christ. Or, oh, as I was reading in my Bible. Oh, as I was reading this Christian book. And... In a subtle way, we can find ourselves commending ourselves. We need to be so careful, don't we? And we need to live for God's approval rather than for man's approval. How can you get God's approval? It's only through Christ, isn't it? It's only through Jesus dying on the cross and through faith in what Jesus did that you get God's approval. And then having been saved, you then with good conscience follow him. Looking to him to say to you on that final day, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what really counts, isn't it? It's not what men save you. 
It's not what you say about yourself. What actually counts is what will God say about you on that day. So that's the fourth thing. The fifth thing is that they compared themselves with others. These false teachers, they, or the, the believers in Corinth, listened to those who compared themselves with others. Verse 12 again. Do we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are comparing, commending themselves? But when they measure themselves by one another <clears throat> and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. You see, what these false teachers are doing is that they're saying, I'm better than so-and-so. You know, remember, we, some of us used to do that when we were children. Maybe some of you still do it. Oh, I'm better than you. I'm the king of the castle. You're the weedy rascal. And that's the natural tendency we have, isn't it? Compare ourselves with other people. And that's what they were doing. Oh, we're better than Paul. We're better than so-and-so. We're better than so-and-so. We're... And they on this, put themselves in this pecking order, comparing themselves with others. I'm better off than so-and-so. I'm more gifted than so-and-so. I'm, I'm more healthy than so-and-so. I had more converts than so-and-so. He said, that's not wise. It's not a good idea. It's without understanding. If you do that, you're without understanding. Why? Number one, because everything we have has come from God in the first place. Any gifts we've got, any abilities, any achievements, it's all from God. Number two, because if you're comparing yourself morally with other people, well, you've, you're using the wrong yardstick. You should be comparing yourself not with other people, but with Christ. And when you compare yourself with Christ, you come a long way short. But also, comparing yourself with others is wrong because the end of comparison is always destructive. Because if you compare yourself with others and you think you're superior to others, then you feel proud. And if you compare yourself with other people and you think you're inferior to them, you feel self-pity. And you think it's not fair. So either way, it doesn't work. Don't bother comparing yourself with somebody else. It's a complete and utter waste of time. Now, I've got to remember this as a pastor. You know, oh, so-and-so's got 200 people in their church. I've only got 30. Oh, I've got to be careful. But we've all got to be careful not to compare ourselves with other people. So application from this is, do not listen to those who make comparisons, who compare themselves with others. But also, be very careful yourself not to compare your life or your lot with somebody else's life. It's a waste of time. It'll do you no good at all. See, if you, if you, as probably most of us will do, when we draw our comparisons, we won't be thinking, oh great, I'm doing fantastic, I'm wonderful, I've got, my life's brilliant. We'll no doubt, most of us will say, oh, my life is no good. So-and-so's life is much better. You know that saying, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. So you look at somebody and it's like, oh, wow, they've got everything going for them. But poor old me. And so what happens? We fall into self-pity. We start to question God's goodness. 
and you get into this sort of negative spiral. No. Don't make comparisons between yourself and other people. What do you do instead? Trust the Lord that he has worked out your life in just the right way. He's given you your circumstances, your gifts, the outcomes in your life, just as he knew was best for you. And give thanks to God in that situation. Be content in him. So here are these five things that they were doing wrong in this church. Number one, they were judging by outward appearances. Number two, they looked down on God's true servant. Number three, they misinterpreted gentleness. Number four, they listened to those who commended themselves. And number five, they listened to those who compared themselves with other people. Well, I hope and pray that God will help us to remember this and to apply it to ourselves. Maybe uh, you need to exercise better discernment about who you're listening to on the internet. Maybe you need to learn not to follow some of these bad character traits of some of these false teachers. Maybe I need to do that. May the Lord speak to us all and help us to apply his word. Maybe there might be somebody here who needs to come to Christ. Because you're never going to have that approval from God without Jesus saving you from your sins. So if that's what needs to happen, come to him today. Ask him to save you. That you might have that approval that only God can give. Well, we're going to sing now um, a hymn, number 705, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. And then we've got, um, after this hymn, we've got the Lord's Supper, which we're going to be sharing. Um, uh, and we'd invite you to stay, even if you're not going to be sharing the Lord's Supper, do stay and um, take the opportunity to think about the Lord. And then um, we will break it after that. So, number 705. Rock of ages, hide me now, my refuge be. We'll remain seated as we sing this hymn together. <laughs>